Hello, and welcome to the London Writer's Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parul. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Pragya Agarwal, the academic and author. Pragya is behind popular nonfiction books, including Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman and Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. And in this interview, we talk with Pragya about her writing journey from academia to commercial nonfiction, from research to first drafts, and her journey to finding her voice and believing in herself. She tells us how she considers story structure for such a large topic like motherhood and how she brings together the hard facts alongside the personal narrative. And despite her busy life, Pragya manages to write so much and she gives us tips for overcoming procrastination and she tells us how she writes in small pockets of time and why when she's writing, she only focuses on the present moment. Pragya is very accomplished and she's extremely pragmatic about what it takes to write a book. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Pragya Agarwal. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Dr. Agarwal. Come on down. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so so lucky to have you. And one of the questions that we ask all of our guests is obviously we're speckled around the UK right now and many people around the world. But if we could be holding this interview anywhere in the world, where would you love us to be? Oh, gosh, that's a really tricky question because I can think of so many places right now where I would like to be. But I would love to be in Tuscany overlooking the hills, the vines. And there's a beautiful spot we went to once which is overlooking Montepulciano in Tuscany. And I would love to be there right at this time of the evening. Wow, that sounds absolutely beautiful. We're absolutely there with you. That's great. So today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your writing career and the big ideas that you've written about. But as we researched your writing and academic work, it's clear that you're so much more than your byline of a writer and academic. So one example is that you run Hedge and Hog Prints, which is a green, sustainable card and gift business you run. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, it's at the moment paused because I've been focusing a lot on writing and for the last couple of years. But it's something I started just after my twins were born or just before my twins were born. I was feeling quite, um, I've talked about it in a TEDx talk in 2018, I think, about creativity and how that really helped me through that period. I'd faced workplace bullying. I'd left full-time academia, I was really feeling a little bit, might I say, anxious, depressed and all those things. So I took up a lot of uh, creative things like pottery and ceramics. And I started doing lino cut printmaking at that time as well, which really, really helped me. And I kind of rediscovered creativity because my first degree was in architecture. So I love sketching and painting, but 
during my academic career, I hadn't really had that much time to focus on that. And I started researching more about the link between creativity and mental health and well-being and all different forms of creativity and what kind of meditative aspect it has. And there's research from Stanford to show that when you do something creative, just for the next two, three days, you have this rush of hormones, well-being hormones that can last with you for a while. So that was part of the TEDx talk that I did. So that was like a gift making uh, the gift business, but also I started a social enterprise called the Art Tiffin, which was, which was this idea of nurturing creativity for supporting well-being. And it was also to talk about how children lose their creative confidence as they grow older. So there's research to show that at the age of three or four, every child would say that they are creative. But by the time they're nine or 10, 75% of those children start saying that they're not very artistic or creative because they lose this creative confidence because we tell them that there's one way to be creative. So that social enterprise was to create nurture creativity through monthly subscription boxes and through other things, and also donate that money to other charities as well. So yeah, that was linked to that. That's incredible. There's so many different things you do. I'm curious, where does writing fit among the many things you do? How do you, how do you think about your writing in relation to everything else? Is it a large portion of your time? It's a prominent and significant portion of my time now, especially as the art tiffin is paused and the other stuff that I did is paused. I mean, I do sketching and painting, as you can see some of the things in the background. I do that a lot, but especially when we go away or when we go on holidays, which is rare at the moment, but I even just five, 10 minutes sometimes when I'm feeling anxious. But writing is the big part of what I do, especially in the last two, three years. So as an academic, I was writing, but I was expected to write. I was expected to publish. I was expected to write academic papers. So I lost some of that kind of love for writing because it was in very strict academic constraints. I was supposed to meet these parameters. I was supposed to reach these goals every month or every year about how many papers I published. And then I think I really rediscovered my love for writing, which I had as a child. Uh, so I wrote for different publications like journals and magazines and newspapers. But since Sway, it's been it's been the main thing that I do now, really. Hmm. And I'm curious, when you first started down this career path as an academic, do you remember what your early ambitions were? Like, what sort of work were you hoping to do? Was it around writing or was it around something else? What sort of career did you imagine for yourself when you began this career? As an academic, um, when I started my PhD, which was very interdisciplinary as well. So I think I feel like I've gone kind of full circle because I draw from those skills and I draw from all those things that I developed as an academic uh, since my PhD about interweaving these interdisciplinary threads and research, which is really one of the things that I love doing. But at that time, I just wanted to do really good research. I was really fascinated by asking questions, big questions and trying to answer them. I was really fascinated by looking at different kinds of disciplines and different bits of research and trying to see how they connect together, how these threads link together. And I was really interested in human behavior at that time as well. So my research was about sense of place, how people form a notion of sense of place in environments and mental maps and models. And it linked cognitive science and geography and philosophy and computer science together. And after all the research, academic research was about this, about trying to understand human behavior, its impact on technology, its impact on cities, its impact on spaces around us, its impact on other people around us. So so at that time, my goal was obviously to progress as much in academia, to be a professor, to really good quality research, to be published in the best journals. And I feel like 
some of the goals are still there about research and about focusing on asking big questions about and trying to understand complex behaviors through my research and writing. Mm. And it sounds like you said when Sway came out, so much changed. And yeah. since then, I mean, you've published Sway, you've published Wish We Knew What to Say, talking about talking to children about race, and then now motherhood, which we're going to talk quite a bit about. Is there anything that you've had to learn or unlearn as you kind of step away from academia work and into, I guess, what might be considered more commercial, mm-hmm. popular nonfiction books? Yeah, absolutely. I think academic writing is a certain way of writing. And uh, I think I had to unlearn some of those things because I remember when I was writing Sway, my editor kept reminding me this is not an academic book. It is for popular audience. So you have to bring in your voice. And this thing about voice in academia, you're supposed to write from a very detached, objective perspective, especially I wasn't in humanities. So I don't bring my perspective. We never write from a position of I in academia. And so, so I had to really learn and unlearn some of those things about how to get ideas across in a very accessible way. And I think that's what I'm really passionate about as well, because there's so much good academic research, which people can't read and really grapple with or just really take on board. And sometimes media distorts those kind of scientific research because the way that trying to simplify it and make it accessible, sometimes they make it too simple and really distort the research. So that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. But yes, I had to I had to really learn how to write for popular, uh, for the domain, for wider, more accessible manner, but also about thinking more about my voice and not be afraid of bringing my voice into it. So, I'm curious about that voice and discovering yeah. the voice. Is there anything, I mean, do you feel like you've found it? Is there anything that helped you find it when you were searching for it? I suppose you become more confident writing how you're thinking, I suppose. And I don't really know what my voice is. I still don't know. And I still grapple with that question. But a lot of people, my editor or my agent or people who read, say, we can hear your voice. It's very clear in in, in your books or in your writing. And I suppose it's about becoming more confident about not being afraid of writing how we think initially sometimes and how being being just writing down on. Sometimes we think that we have to write in a certain way because we read all these books about great writing and we read all these books about how to structure and how to shape. And sometimes we can get so bogged down by all that that we can lose ourselves in that because we try and write in a way that we think or imagine is good writing. But I think discovering your voice is about trying to write in a way that feels easy and comfortable to us as well. And I suppose it grows and evolves, I believe. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, we're going to touch a little bit on story structure, shaping it and all of that in just a moment. I'd love to turn to motherhood, your latest book. And so, I mean, I, I've said this to you before in the sort of green room that I absolutely loved it. I love your writing. You explore the way I see it as you explore the idea of what motherhood means, you explore the experience of being a mother from the whole range of unplanned pregnancies, abortion, IVF, surrogacy, and more so the societal pressures that we face to be a mother or what it means to be a mother. So it's such a huge idea and I can't wait to dig into it, but I'd love to go to the, the beginning when you first had that idea. When did that arrive for you? And who were you writing it for? Did you have someone in mind? 
That's really a tricky question, isn't it? Because I think we have these ideas shimmering and glimmering in our head for a long time and we kind of let them be there, do this dance and we do this dance with them, trying to figure out if it's an idea worth going down with or if it's an idea worth engaging with because there's so many ideas. Sometimes you note down bullet points and in my notes in my phone, I have like millions of these ideas that I get in the middle of the night and some of them don't make any sense at all, you know, in the morning or even two days later and I look at them, but some of them get stuck in your head. And I think before, even before I was, I wrote Sway, I was thinking about the notion of what being a woman means. And that has become such a polarized discourse in our media and mainstream media, especially at the moment. I was writing about motherhood bias. I was right, looking at motherhood penalty in workplaces, about the notion of how being a mother shapes people's view of you and how it shapes our perceptions of ourselves. And especially this whole journey that I'd been on. And as I say in the book, I obviously you don't think your story is worth telling sometimes because you think it's just a story of my life, you know, it feels so domestic. And I think also there is this concern that women writers are always associated with kind of domesticity or those writings which are about self and they can be not seen as like these big questions that sometimes men are allowed to explore. So when I was thinking of these ideas after Sway, quite a lot of ideas this idea kept coming back to me, kept hitting me, kept coming and saying, look at me, I need to be dealt with. I started writing about my journey first, just a memoir and looking at historical research alongside because that's how I work. And it just flowed. And then I knew that there was something in there. I just wrote down 10,000 words in a few days without just even, they were not good words. I mean, I went back and edited them and deleted a lot of them, but they flowed. And and I think it grew from there. And I don't know who I was writing for. I suppose I was writing to ask this big question about what being a woman means and what being a mother means. And I also felt like motherhood memoirs are always written from a white middle-class perspective, so much of that. And we don't hear diverse stories. And I was thinking about how different people who are on the margins, who are on the fringes, who are people of color, women of color, but also non-binary, trans community, how do they feel about this question when they, and so I think that's a big answer to your question, but yeah, that's how it started. And you did say in the book that you felt at the beginning, your story was mundane, not of value or interest to anyone. So I'm curious on that because you you did decide that it was of interest at some point. At what point did that change that you thought, okay, this is bigger than just my story? Was there a particular moment? Was there a person that you spoke to? Was there something that changed that you thought, okay, this is a story worth sharing with others? Yeah, I after I wrote Sway, I was uh, feeling quite exhausted. After I submitted the final draft, I had gone through editing. I went on this kind of small retreat in Wales with four other women and I hadn't met any of them before, but it was a quite a brave thing for me to do because I felt really shy and awkward about meeting new people and whether I, I'd like them, whether they liked me, stuck together for five days. But it was really beautiful. It allowed me the time to think and talk about these things with them. And I mentioned this idea that I was thinking about, and they all said, I would read that. And so I think it kind of grew from there, this idea, this germ that Yes, other people have had similar experiences or they might be interested in it. And I suppose I'm quite courageous that way in the way that I just kind of go and say, okay, I'm going to write about it. Let's see what happens, you know. And so I just started writing. And then at that time, I didn't have an agent and 
I applied to a few agents and there was a lot of interest in the research and I got offers from quite a few agents. And then I start, I showed it to my current agent who I started working with. And he was really, he called me up immediately and said how touched he was and how emotionally felt after reading it. And that was just the first, I think, 20,000 words. And I think that's how you get confidence. I'm not very great at sharing my initial writing with a lot of people. So that was really good to get that feedback. Um, I'd love to turn a little bit to story structure. And there's something you say in the opening of Motherhood that really struck me. You said, as you read this book, you might wonder if it's a memoir, a manifesto, autofiction, or a form of political writing. And you say, it is all of these and none. Does it really have to sit in a box? And that leads me to the question, what does story structure mean to you? Because from my perspective, I saw story structure. I saw some sort of categorization. For you, has story structure been helpful or a hindrance? Once again, I think I write very instinctively sometimes. And then I think about these things later. I don't impose and structure on myself when I first start writing. And that's how a lot of my writing develops. I, I write just like the first draft is just how I feel, how I think, how I'm my thoughts. And I've said it before in other places, I think I write a lot in bits and pieces because I have to work it around my family and other commitments and the consultancy work I do and think. Sometimes I write the piece of research I'm reading about or whatever I'm thinking about. And I just write these bits and pieces like pieces of jigsaw. And then I start looking at the bigger picture about how these pieces fit together and whether they make sense, whether a linear timeline makes sense, whether some kind of structure, what structure has come out of this instinctive writing sometimes. Sometimes that creates the structure as well without me having to impose on our structure on it. Because I think sometimes when we write instinctively, we can see the structure in how we had figured out our thoughts as well. So yes, there's a lot of toing and froing, and there's a lot of moving things around and there's a lot of whether this makes sense here or whether that would make sense here. I also had to juggle kind of my memoiristic aspect of it and the academic, the scientific and historical research and how that juxtaposed because they're two different things. And I wanted to have, I also like very much kind of really nice, nice, neat chapter headings. So I kind of sometimes structure according to that. If I get an idea of what this chapter heading would be like, then I structure according to that. So So in response to your question about, yes, I think structure is absolutely necessary because it's the thread that runs through. It guides the reader. It also makes the reader trust the writer about how they are being guided through the writing because it's like you're holding their hand and saying, actually, come with me on this journey and you can trust me on this journey. They should know where they are in some ways. They should know where they're going to, where they will, that they have the security of coming back to where they felt comfortable So I think that sense of comfort has to be created, although a sense of discomfort is also there in my writing where people have to challenge their preconceptions. So structure really matters, but I don't impose a structure at the start. I let it evolve and then move things around. And yes, I mean, an editor does that as well. I get editorial feedback. Sometimes they say, my editor said, this doesn't make sense here. Do you think it would be better moving it here? Or I moved certain sections and then I say, no, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to move it back there or whatever. And, and I think that can be really helpful having a different pair of eyes because once we are caught up in our own writing, it can be so difficult to see, see the bigger picture as well. 
So I suppose it's seeing the smaller picture, but the micro, but also the macro of what is the shape of the book? Where is the book starting? Where is it ending? What's the story I'm trying to tell? What's the question I'm trying to answer? That's, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I'm also thinking about if I looked at a chapter, I noticed that you sort of, there's a, the specificity of your personal story, really quite open and raw and honest about an experience you have. And then you zoom out and talk about it in the broader context of society. And challenging, as you say, you ask some challenging questions. So there's an example where you talk about experience of abortion, and then you zoom out and talk about studies about abortion and really interesting facts. So you talk about how a study in 2015 showed that in this particular case, 95% of the women surveyed actually were confident that they'd made the right choice. And you're saying that actually societal pressure was the problem for them, not necessarily the decision. So I'm curious, because you've got that personal narrative, and you've got that heavier research side. Did you start with one versus the other? Did you start with the specificity and the personal journey first and then push in or push in, bring in the research? Yes. In this case, I started with my own journey and my own experiences. I I knew even when I write, when I'm writing a memoir, I knew that there were certain things I would talk about and there's certain things I wouldn't talk about, you know. So And there were certain things I've never talked about before, but I wanted to talk about because it was important in this context. How can I talk about the bigger picture if I don't talk about the specificity of my experience as well? So I think those were interlinked. But yes, I used my experience as stepping stone in a lot of chapters in this particular book. And then zooming out to say, yes, my experience was specific, but there are some universalities in it. And there are, and these are the big questions when we're asking about these things. And then I start looking at a lot of academic research and scientific papers and historical research. And I looked at a lot of archival material about how, what it's saying. And sometimes these questions evolve out of my experience. Sometimes they feed back into my experience and makes me think and in hindsight about how I was feeling then, why did I feel like that? And perhaps there is some research to show that. So I think they play along with each other. I had to cut out a lot of archival and historical and research because I wanted to keep the balance. And in some chapters, the memory or the memoir or the memoiristic aspect is more, is weighed towards that. And then some the research aspect is more. And it just is just trying to find that balance was tricky in this book. Yeah. And did you allocate a certain amount of time for research? Or did, was it a never-ending rabbit hole of investigating facts and surveys that you wanted to include to back up your points? Yeah, it's a never-ending rabbit hole. And at some point, you have to say, I can't look into any more because even when I'm copy editing, I keep finding new research and I keep adding in and my editor wasn't very happy about it. It's like, I, we have to stop. We can't add any more into this. This is the final line edit. You can't make any more changes. Yeah, I mean, it goes hand in hand. I don't keep time aside for it. It just, I have lots of tabs open all the time. I'm just like doing research while I'm writing. I While I read some paper, it leads me to 10 other papers and then I start reading them and and so that's how my brain works. It's just finding the connection and then seeing which is relevant. I must have read 700 papers or something for this book. <laughs> so, yeah. And this all, all doing this while you have those, you know, saying how busy you are, children, <laughs> caretaking, yeah. that's that's incredible. So there's another element I'd like to talk about in your story writing, because I think, I, you know, when I, I, again, I really did like this book because it had the heart of a memoir and it had that engine of academic work, research and polls, you felt, I felt I could trust you with why you're giving me these opinions and why you're challenging. And then it had this soul of poetry 
you would bring in. You, you know, I don't think I've read anything where I've seen Holly McNish and then the Bible and the Vedas and Gilgamesh all in one book. And I really loved that. And I, I'm curious, did you sprinkle that on top at the end or was it just it came to you while you're doing the narrative? How did that weave together? Both. There are certain things that while I'm writing, they come out of, if I've read a poem, I would have made a note of it somewhere or in a notebook or in my phone or emailed it to me. I have lots of emails I send to myself and then I get really surprised when the email pops in and it's just from me. Yeah, I just read this, read this. I have loads of these emails. And so if I'm reading something, even just like watching TV or doing something and I come across a line of poetry or I come across something and it really resonates with me, I would send it to me and I think about how can I use it? Does it link to my book in some way? And so it weaves in at that. But there are also occasions where I actively look for things that could fit in in certain places as well. So it's both. Yes. And thank you for saying that. That's really lovely that you liked that part. You're welcome. It's just a quick question on including all these extracts. Was it difficult to get permission to include these? Did your publisher help you with that? Yes, my publisher does that. So I wrote that. And in some cases, like when I'm writing the next book, and I have this um, this picture by Dali that I really wanted to include on the in the cover or the start. And my editor would say, actually, permissions for this are very expensive. Do you really want to include that? And we can find out the cost and then you can see if it's really relevant. There were some quotes which I removed because they were really too expensive. There were some which I was really adamant that I really wanted them because they really made they were integral part of the book. But yes, the publisher, they go and ask permission and they tell how much these things cost and we work it out. So Praga, we're curious about your writing process or writing experience of both motherhood compared to Sway. How was it different? How was it similar? What was that experience like for you between the two books? I think they seem like very different books because motherhood has got so much of my personal journey and memoir in it. But I think they're quite similar in a lot of ways as well, because they are underpinned by science and history and research and contemporary media and people's tweets and memes and all those kind of things. Sway was largely research-based and very science-y based. So it's basically rooted in science. I didn't include a lot of poetry or Gilgamesh or all those kind of other literary references. It was less creative in that way, if you really want to call it. It was less creative nonfiction. It was a science book. It was published by Bloomsbury Sigma, which is a popular science. I can't remember what the word is called, (laughs) but they publish popular science books. So in some way, that was different. I suppose I had more freedom with motherhood because I could be more creative with the language. I could be I could bring in, I suppose if you talk with a voice, I suppose it's stronger in motherhood because I can bring in my voice into it. I can bring in different literary references. So there was more freedom and flexibility. I could shape it as I wanted. And so it was different. It started off, I had to just be made sure that I, it wasn't sounding very academic. I had to explain things and it was still sciencey, basically. But there are some commonalities across all my books about racial and gender equities, about looking at society with intersectional interdisciplinary lens and asking questions about our society and about our place in it. Hmm. And what about the pitching process of these two books? So you mentioned that you pitched motherhood out to a bunch, you had a bunch of interests. What was your experience like with Sway and 
I guess I'm curious of, um, it sounds like there were maybe two different agents that you picked up. So what was your experience with Sway versus motherhood in the pitching process? So I'm, I still see myself as a relative outsider in publishing. I didn't have any experience in kind of mainstream publishing. I didn't know anything about it. I've really learned along the way. I didn't have an agent when I got Sway commissioned. It was something just talking to an editor. I was asked to write it. So, and they were saying, am I working on something? And I said, would you be interested in this proposal? I didn't even know that you have to get an agent to pitch anything or how these things work because in academia, books work very, very differently. I didn't know whether you got an advance. I was just like shocked that they wanted to give me some money you know, to write a book. And then they gave me some general guidance about how to write a proposal because obviously he had to take it to the team and the executive team and pitch it to the marketing and the whole team at Bloomsbury. So I that's the first time I really looked at how proposals, because proposal in academia is very different as well, how to structure a nonfiction proposal, what to write, how to sell the book. And I did a lot of research in that and I wrote it and I sent it to him and it got commissioned. I still... Really, I mean, I didn't have an agent, so I suppose that process was tricky as well because I had to ask all the questions. I didn't know whether I should ask this question or not, whether I'm supposed to know the answer to this, whether it's something that I should be concerned about or not. And everything came as a surprise, you know, during that process. At the end of it, when I started thinking, I really want to write more books and I've got all these different ideas. Then I spoke to a couple of people. I spoke to somebody at Bloomsbury and they said, maybe you should get an agent because that'll be really helpful for you for your next contracts. And that's when I kind of think, how do I get an agent? And I, as I said, I had a few ideas. I had fiction ideas first, and then I was thinking of a few different nonfiction ideas. So I sent it to, I emailed some agents and yeah, as I said, five people were really interested and they want, and so that was a really tricky decision and um, yeah, I suppose. Well, that, well done. Thank you. Well done. And I guess turning back to the language and the honesty and your voice in motherhood. So you're very open in talking about struggles around fertility, motherhood, of course, parental grief, relationship with your own parents. How did you gauge what to include or exclude from this book? And how did you decide how open you would be with it? Or did you get help deciding that from your editor? Mm-hmm. I think it's a decision we have to make when we are writing our own story, because even when you're writing about really intimate personal thing, we have to keep certain things close to our heart and we don't want them out in the world because otherwise what's intimate, you know? So I had to be honest, as I say in the book, I had to be honest so that the reader could trust me. I had to be raw on it. I had to be vulnerable. I had to show all that because these are raw, vulnerable, honest topics, very intimate topics to write about. But I was very clear about what I would include and how I would put it forward and what things I would never talk about. Because, yes, it is my story and I don't write it from anybody else's perspective. And as I say in the book, they might have had a very different experience of the same situation because we all do. But I still had to respect people who are still here and think about how they would feel if they read it. I also wanted to be very clear about how my children would feel if they read it, you know, because that affects their privacy and their identity and their place in the world. So I was very, very conscious of that. I wrote quite a few things that I removed later when I read it back and I thought, no, I don't want to reveal that. I don't, this is not necessary to the story. Sometimes you have to think about the story and the narrative and you think actually it's distracting for me. 
you have to think about whether you're writing a book as therapy or you're writing as a book to have a conversation with the reader. And I don't think we should ever write a book as a therapy because it's not supposed to be that. It's not supposed to be just throwing all my heart on the on the page and treating it as a therapeutic process, which is supposed to engage the reader to help them see themselves sometimes to ask questions. I mm. My father passed away in November while I was finishing the book and that came as a huge shock. And I do include parts about him, but I did delete some things then at that time where I thought I'm not going to include this now. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, very sorry to hear that. And it's really clear you've just hearing you talk about this, you really care about the reader. You've said this a number of times. And I just I think this is a really nice lesson around, you know, not being therapy, but actually thinking about what's the reader experience and then talking about structure as hand holding, taking someone through a journey that they can trust. So I just wanted to reflect that back because I think that's a really, it's really powerful. So thanks for sharing that. So we want to turn to kind of wider career. So uh, especially your earlier book, Sway, because there's a, you talk about a bunch of different unconscious biases. And there's one in particular that we think a lot of writers will really hit home with them. Uh, you talk about the idea of procrastination and how present bias is the reason that we all procrastinate. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this is and what you've discovered? And if you have discovered any tips to help us get beyond this bias? I have my five-year-old now here at the moment. So. Hi. Hello. I mean, I wouldn't expect anything else. A book about motherhood. Of course, we need your daughter. Yeah. In it. It's as though um, she knew she, we needed the proof. Here, yes. Here Here's your daughter. But yeah, you talked about procrastination. Gosh, I wanted to include that because, yeah, I mean, I suppose um, I have to think back about what I wrote. It seems like such a long time ago. But, you spoke about Tim Urban. You'd see yeah, the, 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 the Oh, my God. I, I love the TED Talk. I watched it so much. And I watched it. And that was a form of procrastination as well, because I think I'm doing. But, you know, we talk about research. Sometimes I procrastinate by doing research, by reading these papers, because I think I need to just read one more. And there are five more which are really interesting. Or maybe I should go and read about the Vedas or the Bible. But that can be a form of procrastination sometimes from really writing about things, you know, with that I actually have to write now about things. And I think we procrastinate sometimes because we've got this present bias because we want to, what we have in the present moment is more enjoyable and we are not very, we don't find it easy to look beyond that sometimes. And it, that shows it's also about how people invest. That's also about how people spend and, and save money as well, because the pleasure right now outweighs what happens in the future or what delights or what rewards we might get in the future about doing things. And so I think that that is how, why, I mean, I can rationalize it, but ultimately it's just that I need to get over it and do the work sometimes. And have you found that you've, as you've written more, as you started to write more books, are you getting any better at it or have you discovered any tricks that have helped you? Yeah, I think it has really helped me to think that what I'm writing right now is not, has to be perfect. It's just got to be something because until I write something, I cannot make it better. I think I used to have this hang up that whatever I put down on the page has to be good or has to be perfect in some way. And so I would be freeze, frozen with fear about writing anything because it's like, what if it isn't good enough? And instead of that, I just think I need to just write down whatever. It can be really rough and I call it the vomit draft because it's really rough sometimes. Sometimes it's really good and you're in a flow and you write really good things, but sometimes it's not. 
it's just not. But unless you write down something, how do you make it better? I think that's how I've overcome this. That, And also because I know how valuable sometimes my time is, that if I only have half an hour, I really have to do something in this half an hour around childcare or around school times or around whatever other commitments or the speaking or whatever. I have this half an hour, so I should do something about it. Sometimes deadlines help as well. I think I've got better that I don't do things at the last hour because I know that's not how I work and that's not going to be good. But certainly thinking that whatever I'm writing doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be something. I'm curious when you start to write and you're writing this vomit draft, do you think ahead to, and maybe the answer is no, do you think ahead to how many drafts it might take or do you allow yourself, I have a year to write this. How do you think in terms of timelines and drafts? Mm, I used to do that, this like huge planning and I would work backwards. But I think, no, I don't have an idea of how much time it will take. I think it's important at that point for me not to think too far ahead, because if I do, then I procrastinate, then I freeze with fear, then I I rationalize not doing things because I would never be able to make it. What's the point? If I just focus on now and say, this is the moment I have, I'm going to just write down whatever I think, even if it's really bad, even if it's just like train of thought, if it's just a summary of a paper that I've done, I find different things to do. If I can't write anything, maybe I'll just go and read something because that is also part of creativity and writing process. I think we sometimes feel like putting down words is the most important thing, but writing something, underlining things, writing about other people, reading about other people is also helpful sometimes because that can really spur on your thoughts and your inclination. It can motivate you to write as well because you read other people and think, ah, actually, what if I thought it like that? And that can solve some of the conundrums and questions sometimes as well. So I think that... Mm. So I want to go a little bit deeper on this. And you mentioned earlier, you're one of those people in the 100 tabs club, which I'm definitely a part of this. Parl is not, but I think some other people are here. Um, bunch of tabs open. And I'm curious because we're sounds like we're just so excited by different ideas and the synapses yeah. are always firing, right? And you don't want to lose something. And so you email it to yourself. But how do you balance that with actually getting something done you know, and finishing? Because you've been very prolific over the last couple of years. So you have... you and Plus being a mother in short pockets of time, you talk about these 30-minute times. Just curious, balancing all these ideas with actually shipping, finishing, publishing. How do you do it? Tell us your secrets. (laughs) Gosh, my secrets. I do have lots of tabs open and sometimes I lose them and then I feel really sad about it. But then I realize I haven't actually read them for the last month. So I don't know why I was saving them. So yeah, that happens. But I do have these tabs open because I'm thinking about lots of sides or questions about a particular idea. I don't, I do go down rabbit holes at night, especially when I'm doing things and I start looking and and then I start thinking, oh, but what about that? And what about that? And then all these tabs will open. But I do have a Word document open at the same time. And I will make sure that if I have a deadline, I will write it. And I don't know why that is now. I suppose as you write more, writing becomes easier in some way, although it's more difficult as well, but it does become easier because you figure out more stuff about yourself, about how you work. I think it's about figuring out how we work, how our bodies work, what is our rhythm, what is our style is most important and not berating ourselves for it. If that is the way I work, 
that might not be the norm. That might not be what other people recommend. But if this is the way I work, this is the way I'm going to work. Yes, I might pick up some good habits along the way, but I'm not going to force myself to work in a different way. And the same with writing routines as well. Some people say you should get up in the morning. You should do us have a routine every day. Yes, that's really good. And I think that's really important. But sometimes it doesn't work out like that. So in case of having these tabs open, I love doing that. I love reading lots of things. And that's okay because that really fires up some of the things. And sometimes I'm reading a paper and I think, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe I should write about this because that's a big question. And so that's interesting. But ultimately, ultimately, again, when you're writing, it doesn't have to be the final polished product. And that's how I think I achieve, get me deadlines because I, I write and that might not be the perfect thing, but what is perfect? That is, I think, we need to talk about as well. We impose so many ideas of perfection upon ourselves, and then we feel pressure and we feel guilt if we don't meet it. And I think we need to think about how we work, when we work best, the way we work, the way we read, the way we write, and just knowing more about ourselves and being comfortable with it. It sounds so preachy. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it sounds re really kind. It sounds like something that we all need to hear, actually, because we might know that in theory, but it's really hard to apply that every day. And it's so easy to think that someone else has a perfect way of doing something. Mm. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. And one more question on that. When you do grab these 30 minutes of time, is it you on the computer? Is it on the phone? Is it pen and paper? Is it all three of those, something else? What are those little chunks of time look like for you? Sometimes just the phone. Sometimes, yeah, I I have all these notebooks, but then I forget the notebook and I just jot down on the next bit of paper that I can find. And so I have all these bits of paper on my desk, which have lots of written notes written on them. And then I stick them up on the wall. Sometimes it's none of those. Sometimes it's just watching TV because I don't feel like working and I really need mm -hmm. to just relax and chill out and just let my brain not be so wired up or just be so hectic. And if it's been really hectic, if I'm really tired, I might just take a nap. And I, I think that's something that I've really learned along the way that I need to feel less guilty about this because it's all part of the creative process. It's all part of the process. We don't have to always think just about the end result. We have to think about the process as well. And if I'm too tired, if I'm too exhausted, what's the point of me sitting at my desk and trying to write for half an hour and not being able to achieve anything? So I'm getting better at it. It's not there yet, but I think I'm getting better at not feeling guilty. Hmm. I think well, that's great. I hope, thank yeah, you. And hopefully all of us can get there too at some point, but thank you for giving us permission uh, and <laughs> seeing exactly us. What I was I feel say. Like people feel, <laughs> feel yeah, seen. Exactly. Sometimes we just need that permission. I'm going to, we should record that. Uh, and have yeah. it as our wake up message. Um, so I, I'd like to ask you about just your, I suppose your confidence. You seem so confident in voicing your opinions publicly. And to put it lightly, <laughs> you seem to give very few shits. <laughs> it's a confidence there that I admire, that we admire. And is this something that comes natural to you or is it something that you've learned or picked up along the way? Mm. Do I give any shits? <laughs> Um, I think I was very opinionated as a young person as well. I had really strong opinions about how things should be and rebelled against inequalities, especially gender growing up in India. But I suppose then you learn that these you're not supposed to 
be so opinionated. You're supposed not supposed to be too much. You're not supposed to be too emotional or too angry or too all those things, you know, especially as a woman. I think you're you're told you're supposed to be a certain way. You're supposed to act a certain way because nice girls don't do that or good girls don't do that. And so you start shrinking yourself. And I suppose I did that for quite some time. I started shrinking myself. I started being afraid of voicing my opinion, started being afraid of saying things that really mattered to me or that I how I felt. And then as I've grown older, and I think about my children and what I want them to learn and take on, I think I need to be a role model for them. I need them to know they have a voice and they shouldn't be afraid to use it. Sometimes they might get it wrong. I'm sure I get it wrong a lot of the time. But if this is how you feel, we should be able to say that. And why should women, girls, be should not be not be able to voice our opinions, especially as you think as women of color, there's a lot of research to show that we get more abuse or trolling on social media, or there's more expectations around how societal norms around what we should behave are more passive. And girls are called bossy while boys are not as they're growing up. I know my five-year-old's already been called bossy in the supermarket by an old lady. And I really want to rebel against all that. I really want to tell them that Yes, unless we use a voice, how can we create change? And we need to be able to do that. I want them to take up space. I want them to be loud. I want them to express their opinions. I want them to have opinions because what's the point of sitting on the fence and not expressing our opinions or not having views? You know, they should be informed. (laughs) They should be informed views and we learn how to do that as well. But yes, I do suffer from imposter syndrome sometimes as well. I do think about whether I should say these things or not. I do think about whether I'm good enough or not. I think all of us feel like that. And uh, we just have to get over it sometimes or talk to somebody. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, I feel like I grew up with an Asian father, Indian father. So a lot of what you say resonates with me, this idea of shrinking and being a good girl. So I I personally very, I really value your outspokenness. And I really value that in your book, you champion everyone. I feel like you were trying, you almost like you're trying to have the world on your shoulders. You're trying to be that voice for everyone and particularly those who don't have a voice. So it's my personal thank you to you. But um, just going back to your point on speaking out loud and maybe facing backlash, like you say, online, perhaps, does that, has that ever come into play? Has it ever, has there been a backlash or has it ever been an issue at work, either your career as an academic or an author? I think as an academic, I wished I had spoken out more because I didn't. I think I, as a lot of women, but especially as I say, women of color, you feel almost grateful for things and opportunities that you have been given a space in a particular domain and that you should feel grateful and you should do the line and you should not create a fuss or not demand things or not be seen as. And I think I did quite a lot of that. So I look back and think, I wish I had talked out more. I wish I had asked more, more. I wish I had demanded more. And I think that caused a lot of anxiety and mental health problems as well, because I was suppressing all that and trying to conform to something. But backlash, yes. I mean, I get abusive true messages almost every day. I get messages on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram almost every day, especially when I was talking about things like white privilege or racism, especially when I wrote the book about unconscious bias, but also children and talking to them about racism. I got a lot of nasty messages. I used to get really upset about them. And then 
just talking to my husband, he was like, I mean, you have to expect this. What do you want to do? Do you not want to say how you feel? Or do you want to worry about people who are sending you these messages? And yeah, that puts things into perspective. What is more important to me? I try not to share too much about where I live and where my children go to school and other kind of things because I worry. And sometimes you get really nasty messages on Facebook at three o'clock in the morning, which target your children about how they'll find them and do things to them. And that really scares and terrifies you. But then you think these are cowards hiding behind a keyboard and they have no kind of autonomy or agency perhaps, and they're feeling fearful or they're feeling scared about their place perhaps. I think it's really important that people who have a platform and a voice speak out because otherwise what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Yes. Thank you for yeah speaking up in all the work that you do and continue to please. And this is, I think maybe a, a wonderful way to end this is maybe we can scrape off a bit of your courage for us in our work and maybe we can step up a little bit more and take up more space and speak up. So thank you for that. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Thank you.